Book Three, Chapter Ten, Part One of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Magdalena Cook. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Ten, Part One. Miss Gwilt's Diary. July twenty-first, Monday night, eleven o'clock. Midwinter has just left me. We parted by my desire at the path out of the coppice. He is going his way to the hotel, and I am going to mine to my lodgings. I have managed to avoid making another appointment with him by arranging to write to him tomorrow morning. This gives me the night's interval to compose myself and to coax my mind back, if I can, to my own affairs. Will the night pass and the morning find me still thinking of the letter that came to him from his father's deathbed, of the night he watched through on the wrecked ship? and more than all of the first breathless moment when he told me his real name? Would it help me to shake off these impressions, I wonder, if I made the effort of writing them down? There would be no danger in that case of my forgetting anything important. And, perhaps, after all, it may be the fear of forgetting something which I ought to remember that keeps this story of midwinter's weighing as it does on my mind. At any rate, the experiment is worth trying. In my present situation, I must be free to think of other things, or I shall never find my way through all the difficulties at Thorpe Ambrose that are still to come. Let me think. What haunts me, to begin with? The names haunt me. I keep saying and saying to myself, both alike, Christian name and surname both alike, a light-haired Alan Armadale, whom I have long since known of, and who is the son of my old mistress, a dark-haired Alan Armadale, whom I only know of now, and who is only known to others under the name of Ozias Midwinter. Stranger still, it is not relationship, it is not chance, that has made them namesakes. The father of the light Armadale was the man who was born to the family name, and who lost the family inheritance. The father of the dark Armadale was the man who took the name on condition of getting the inheritance, and who got it. So there are two of them. I can't help thinking of it both unmarried. The light-haired Armadale, who offers to the woman who can secure him, eight thousand a year while he lives, who leaves her twelve hundred a year when he dies, who must and shall marry me for those two golden reasons, and whom I hate and loathe as I never hated and loathed a man yet. And the dark-haired Armadale, who has a poor little income, which might perhaps pay his wife's milliner, if his wife was careful, who has just left me, persuaded that I mean to marry him, and whom, well, whom I might have loved once, before I was the woman I am now. And Alan the Fair doesn't know he has a namesake, and Alan the Dark has kept the secret from everybody but the Somersetshire clergyman, whose discretion he can depend on, and myself. And there are two Alan Armadales. Two Alan Armadales. Two Alan Armadales. There, three is a lucky number. Haunt me again after that, if you can. What next? The murder in the timber ship. No, the murder is a good reason why the dark Armadale, whose father committed it, should keep his secret from the fair Armadale, whose father was killed. But it doesn't concern me. I remember there was a suspicion in Madeira at the time of something wrong. Was it wrong? Was the man who had been tricked out of his wife to blame for shutting the cabin door, and leaving the man who had tricked him to drown in the wreck? Yes, the woman wasn't worth it. 
What am I sure of that really concerns myself? I am sure of one very important thing. I am sure that Midwinter, I must call him by his ugly false name, or I may confuse the two Armadales before I have done. I am sure that Midwinter is perfectly ignorant that I and the little imp of twelve years old, who waited on Mrs. Armadale in Madeira, and copied the letters that were supposed to arrive from the West Indies, are one and the same. There are not many girls of twelve who could have imitated a man's handwriting, and held their tongues about it afterward, as I did. But that doesn't matter now. What does matter is that Midwinter's belief in the dream is Midwinter's only reason for trying to connect with me and Alan Armadale, by associating me with Alan Armadale's father and mother. I asked him if he actually thought me old enough to have known either of them, and he said no, poor fellow, in the most innocent, bewildered way. Would he say no if he saw me now? Shall I turn to the glass and see if I look my five-and-thirty years, or shall I go on writing? I will go on writing. There is one thing more that haunts me almost as obstinately as the names. I wonder whether I am right in relying on Midwinter's superstition, as I do, to help me in keeping him at arm's length. After having let the excitement of the moment hurry me into saying more than I need have said, he is certain to press me, he is certain to come back, with a man's hateful selfishness and impatience in such things, to question of marrying me. Will the dream help me check him? After alternately believing and disbelieving in it, he has got, by his own confession, to believing in it again. Can I say I believe in it too? I have better reasons for doing so than he knows of. I am not the only person who helped Mrs. Armadale's marriage by helping her to impose on her own father. I am the woman who tried to drown herself, the woman who started the series of accidents which put young Armadale in possession of his fortune, the woman who has come Thorpe Ambrose to marry him for his fortune. Now he has got it. And more extraordinary still, the woman who stood in the shadow's place at the pool. These may be coincidences, but they are strange coincidences. I declare I begin to fancy that I believe in the dream too. Suppose I say to him, I think as you think. I say what you said in your letter to me. Let us part before the harm is done. Leave me before the third vision of the dream comes true. Leave me and put the mountains and the seas between you and the man who bears your name. Suppose on the other side that his love for me makes him reckless of everything else. Suppose he says those desperate words again, which I understand now. What is to be, will be. What have I to do with it? And what is she? Suppose, suppose... I won't write any more. I hate writing. It doesn't relieve me. It makes me worse. I'm further from being able to think of all that I must think of than I was when I sat down. It is past midnight. Tomorrow has come already, and here I am as helpless as the stupidest woman living. Bed is the only fit place for me. Bed. If it was ten years since, instead of today, and if I had married midwinter for love, I might be going to bed now with nothing heavier on my mind than a visit on tiptoe to the nursery, and a last look at night to see if my children were sleeping quietly in their cribs. I wonder whether I should have loved my children if I had ever had any. Perhaps. Yes, perhaps. No, it doesn't matter. Tuesday morning, ten o'clock. Who was the man who invented laudanum? I thank him from the bottom of my heart, whoever he is. If all the miserable wretches in pain of body and mind, whose comforter he has been, 
could meet together to sing his praises, what a chorus it would be. I have had six delicious hours of oblivion. I have woke up with my mind composed. I have written a perfect little letter to midwinter. I have drunk my nice cup of tea with a real relish of it. I have dawdled over my morning toilet with an exquisite sense of relief. And all through the modest little bottle of drops which I see on my bedroom chimney-piece at this moment. Drops, you are a darling. If I love nothing else, I love you. My letter to Midwinter has been sent through the post, and I have told him to reply to me in the same manner. I feel no anxiety about his answer. He can only answer in one way. I have asked for a little time to consider, because my family's circumstances require some consideration, in his interests as well as in mine. I have engaged to tell him what those circumstances are. What shall I say, I wonder, when we meet next? and I have requested him in the meantime to keep all that has passed between us a secret for the present. As to what he is to do himself in the interval, while I am supposed to be considering, I have left it to his own discretion, merely reminding him that his attempting to see me again, while our positions towards each other cannot be openly avowed, might injure my reputation. I have offered to write to him if he wishes it and I have ended by promising to make the interval of our necessary separation as short as I can. This sort of plain, unaffected letter, which I might have written to him last night, if his story had not been running in my head as it did, has one defect, I know. It certainly keeps him out of the way while I am casting my net and catching my goldfish at the great house for the second time, but it also leaves an awkward day of reckoning to come with midwinter if I succeed. How am I to manage him? What am I to do? I ought to face those two questions as boldly as usual, but somehow my courage seems to fail me, and I don't quite fancy meeting that difficulty till the time comes when it must be met. Shall I confess to my diary that I am sorry for midwinter, and that I shrink a little from thinking of the day when he hears that I am going to be mistress at the great house? But I am not mistress yet and I can't take a step in that direction of the great house till I have got the answer to my letter, and till I know that midwinter is out of the way. Patience, patience. I must go and forget myself at my piano. There is the moonlight sonata open and tempting me on the music stand. Have I nerve enough to play it, I wonder? Or will it set me shuddering with the mystery and terror of it as it did the other day? Five o'clock. I have got his answer. The slightest request I can make is a command to him. He has gone, and he sends me his address in London. There are two considerations, he says, which help to reconcile me to leaving you. The first is that you wish it, and that is only to be for a little while. The second is that I think I can make some arrangements in London for adding to my income by my own labour. I have never cared for money for myself, but you don't know how I am beginning already to price the luxuries and refinements that money can provide, for my wife's sake. Poor fellow! I almost wish I had not written to him as I did. I almost wish I had not sent him away from me. Fancy if Mother Oldershaw saw this page in my diary. I have had a letter from her this morning, a letter to remind me of my obligations, and to tell me she suspects things are all going wrong. Let her suspect. I shan't trouble myself to answer. I can't be worried with that old wretch in the state I am in now. It is a lovely afternoon. I want a walk. I mustn't think of midwinter. 
Suppose I put on my bonnet and try my experiment at once at the great house. Everything is in my favour. There is no spy to follow me, and no lawyer to keep me out this time. Am I handsome enough to-day? Well, yes, handsome enough to be a match for a little dowdy, awkward, freckled creature, or to be perched on a form at school and strapped to a backboard to straighten her crooked shoulders. The nursery lisps out in all they utter. Besides, they always smell of bread and butter. How admirably Byron has described girls in their teens. Eight o'clock. I have just got back from Armadale's house. I have seen him and spoken to him, and the end of it may be set down in three plain words. I have failed. There is no more chance of my being Mrs. Armadale of Thorpe Ambrose than there is of me being Queen of England. Shall I write and tell Aldershaw? Shall I go back to London? Not till I have had time to think a little. Not just yet. Let me think. I have failed completely. Failed, with all the circumstances in favour of success. I caught him alone on the drive in front of the house. He was excessively disconcerted, but at the same time quite willing to hear me. I tried him, first quietly, then with tears, and the rest of it. I introduced myself in the character of the poor innocent woman whom he had been the means of injuring. I confused, I interested, I convinced him. I went on the purely Christian part of my errand, and spoke with such feeling of his separation from his friend, for which I was innocently responsible, that I turned his odious rosy face quite pale, and made him beg me at last not to distress him. But whatever other feelings I roused in him, I never once roused his old feeling for me. I saw it in his eyes when he looked at me, I felt it in his fingers when we shook hands. We parted friends, and nothing more. It is for this, is it, Miss Milroy, that I resisted temptation, morning after morning, when I knew you were out alone in the park? I have just left you time to slip in and take my place in Armadale's good graces, have I? I never resisted temptation yet without suffering for it in some such way as this. If I had only followed my first thoughts on the day when I took leave of you, my young lady. Well, well, never mind that now. I have got the future before me. You are not Mrs. Armadale yet. And I can tell you one other thing. Whoever else he marries, he will never marry you. If I am even with you in no other way, trust me, whatever comes of it, to be even with you there. I am not, to my own surprise, in one of my furious passions. The last time I was in this perfectly cool state, under serious provocation, something came of it, which I daren't write down, even in my own private diary. I shouldn't be surprised if something comes of it now. On my way back I called at Mr. Bashwood's lodgings in the town. He was not at home, and I left a message telling him to come here tonight and speak to me. I mean to relieve him at once of the duty of looking after Armadale and Miss Milroy. I may not see my way yet to ruining her prospects of thought Ambrose as completely as she has ruined mine, but when the time comes, and I do see it, I don't know to what lengths my sense of injury may take me, and there may be inconvenience, and possibly danger, in having such a chicken-hearted creature as Mr. Bashwood in my confidence. I suspect I am more upset by all this than I supposed. Midwinter's story is beginning to haunt me again, without rhyme or reason. A soft, quick, trembling knock at the street door. I know who it is. No hand but old Bashwood's could knock in that way. Nine o'clock. I have just got rid of him. He has surprised me by coming out in a new character. 
It seems, though I didn't detect him, he was at the great house while I was in company with Armadale. He saw us talking on the drive, and he afterward heard what the servants said, who saw us too. The wise opinion below stairs is that we have made it up, and that the master is likely to marry me after all. He's sweet on her red hair, was the elegant expression they used in the kitchen. Little Missy can't match her there, and little Missy will get the worst of it. How I hate the coarse ways of the lower orders. While old Bashwood was telling me this, I thought he looked even more confused and nervous than usual. But I failed to see what was really the matter until after I had told him that he was to leave all further observation of Mr. Armadale and Miss Milroy to me. Every drop of the little blood there is in the feeble old creature's body seemed to fly up into his face. He made quite an overpowering effort. He really looked as if he were dropped down dead of fright at his own boldness. But he forced out the question for all that, stammering and stuttering and kneading desperately with both hands at the brim of his hideous great hat. "'I beg your pardon, Miss Gw Gw Gwilt. You are not really going to marry Mr. Armadale, are you?' Jealous, if I ever saw it in a man's face yet, I saw it in his. Actually jealous of Armadale at his age? If I had been in the humour for it, I should have burst out laughing in his face. As it was, I was angry, and lost all patience with him. I told him he was an old fool, and ordered him to go on quietly with his usual business until I sent word that he was wanted again. He submitted as usual, but there was an indescribable something in his watery old eyes when he took leave of me which I have never noticed in them before. Love has the credit of working all sorts of strange transformations. Can it be really possible that love has made Mr. Bashwood man enough to be angry with me? Wednesday My experience of Miss Milroy's habits suggested a suspicion to me last night which I thought it desirable to clear up this morning. It was always her way, when I was at the cottage, to take a walk early in the morning before breakfast, considering that I used often to choose that very time for my private meetings with Armadale. It struck me as likely that my former pupil might be taking a leaf out of my book, and that I might make some desirable discoveries if I turned my steps in the direction of the Major's garden at the right hour. I deprived myself of my drops, to make sure of waking, passed a miserable night in consequence, and was ready enough to get up at six o'clock and walk the distance from my lodgings to the cottage in the fresh morning air. I had not been five minutes on the park side of the garden enclosure before I said had come out. She seemed to have had a bad night too. Her eyes were heavy and red, and her lips and cheeks looked swollen as if she had been crying. There was something on her mind, evidently, something, as it soon appeared, to take her out of the garden into the park. She walked, if one can call it walking with such legs as hers, straight to the summer-house and opened the door and crossed the bridge and went on quicker and quicker toward the low ground in the park, where the trees are thickest. I followed her over the open space with perfect impunity in the preoccupied state she was in, and, when she began to slacken her pace among the trees, I was among the trees too, and was not afraid of her seeing me. Before long there was a crackling and trampling of heavy feet coming up towards us through the underwood in a deep dip of the ground. I knew that step as well as she knew it. "'Here I am,' she said in a faint little voice. I kept behind the trees a few yards off, in some doubt on which side Armadale would come out of the underwood to join her. He came out up the side of the dell, opposite to the tree behind which I was standing. They sat down together on the bank. I sat down behind the tree, and looked at them through the underwood. 
and heard without the slightest difficulty every word that they said. The talk began by his noticing that she looked out of spirits, and asking if anything had gone wrong at the cottage. The artful little minx lost no time in making the necessary impression on him. She began to cry. He took her hand, of course, and tried in his brutishly straightforward way to comfort her. No, she was not to be comforted. A miserable prospect was before her. She had not slept the whole night for thinking of it. Her father had called her into his room the previous evening, had spoken about the state of her education, and had told her in so many words that she was to go to school. The place had been found, and the terms had been settled, and as soon as her clothes could be got ready, Miss was to go. "'While that hateful Miss Gwilt was in my house,' says this model young person, "'I would have gone to school willingly. I wanted to go. But it's all different now. I don't think of it in the same way. I feel too old for school. I'm quite heartbroken, Mr. Armadale.' There she stopped as if she had meant to say more, and gave him a look which finished the sentence plainly. "'I'm quite heartbroken, Mr. Armadale, now we are friendly again, at going away from you. "'For downright brazen impudence, which a grown woman would be ashamed of, give me the young girls whose modesty is so pertinaciously insisted on by the nauseous domestic sentimentalist of the present day.' Even Armadale, booby as he is, understood her. After bewildering himself in a labyrinth of words that led nowhere, he took her, one can hardly say, round the waist, for she hasn't got one, he took her round the last hook and eye of her dress, and by way of offering her a refuge from the indignity of being sent to school at her age, made her a proposal of marriage in so many words. If I could have killed them both at that moment by lifting up my little finger, I have not the least doubt that I should have lifted it. As things were, I only waited to see what Miss Milroy would do. She appeared to think it necessary, feeling, I suppose, that she had met him without her father's knowledge, and not forgetting that I had had the start of her as the favourite object of Mr. Armadale's good opinion, to assert herself by an explosion of virtuous indignation. She wondered how he could think of such a thing after his conduct with Miss Gwilt, and after her father had forbidden him the house. Did he want to make her feel how inexcusably she had forgotten what was due to herself? Was it worthy of a gentleman to propose what he knew as well as she did was impossible? And so on, and so on. Any man with brains in his head would have known what all this rhodomontada really meant. Armadale took it so seriously that he actually attempted to justify himself. He declared, in his headlong, blundering way, that he was quite in earnest. He and her father might make it up and be friends again and, if the Major persisted in treating him as a stranger, young ladies and gentlemen in their situation had made runaway marriages before now, and fathers and mothers who wouldn't forgive them before had forgiven them afterward. Such outrageously straightforward love-making as this left Miss Milroy, of course, but two alternatives, to confess that she had been saying no when she meant yes, or to take refuge in another explosion. She was hypocrite enough to prefer another explosion. "'How dare you, Mr. Armadale! Go away directly! It's inconsiderate! It's heartless! It's perfectly disgraceful to say such things to me!' And so on and so on. It seems incredible, but it is not the less true, that he was positively fool enough to take her at her word. He begged her pardon and went away like a child that is put in the corner." the most contemptible object in the form of a man that eyes ever looked on. She waited after he had gone to compose herself, 
and I waited behind the trees to see how she would succeed. Her eyes wandered round slyly to the path by which he had left her. She smiled. Grinned would be the truer way of putting it, with such a mouth as hers. Took a few steps on tiptoe to look after him, turned back again, and suddenly burst into a violent fit of crying. I am not quite so easily taken in as Armadale, and I saw what it all meant plainly enough. Tomorrow, I thought to myself, you will be in the park again, miss, by pure accident. The next day you will lead him on into proposing to you for the second time. The day after he will venture back to the subject of runaway marriages, and you will only be becomingly confused. And the day after that, if he has got a plan to propose, and if your clothes are ready to be packed for school, you will listen to him. Yes, yes, time is always on the man's side, where a woman is concerned, if the man is only patient enough to let time help him. I let her leave the place and go back to the cottage, quite unconscious that I had been looking at her. I waited among the trees, thinking. The truth is, I was impressed by what I had heard and seen, in a manner that is not very easy to describe. I put the whole thing before me in a new light. It showed me what I had never even suspected till this morning, that she is really fond of him. Heavy as my debt of obligation is to her, there is no fear now of my failing to pay it to the last farthing. It would have been no small triumph for me to stand between Miss Milroy and her ambition to be one of the leading ladies of the county. But it is infinitely more where her first love is concerned to stand between Miss Milroy and her heart's desire. Shall I remember my own youth and spare her? No. She has deprived me of the one chance I had of breaking the chain that binds me to a past life too horrible to be thought of. I am thrown back into a position, compared to which the position of an outcast who walks the streets is endurable and enviable. No, Miss Milroy, no, Mr. Armadale, I will spare neither of you. End of chapter 10, part 1